0: Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and I think you can believe everything happens for a reason without starting a cult over it.
1: <laughs> Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner, and I would prefer not to think that I'm following a script. He said reading the script. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Welcome to Space the Nation, where we look at science fiction through the lens of...
1: Millenarianism and...
0: hierophany. <laughs> Today we'll be talking about Station Eleven, in the next few weeks we'll be talking about Jurassic Park, and then other stuff. Mm-hmm. We don't know right what comes up after. We have Jurassic some notions. Park.
1: There's gonna be a staff meeting about this, which yes. so we will then provide it you know, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you will then probably get some information about what's coming next.
0: That's true. Yeah. That's true. You should subscribe to the newsletter. There go to tinyletter.com slash space the nation. Mm-hmm. Dan tell the kids about hot sci fi summer. <laughs>
1: Hot sci-fi summer is going to be bitching, man. So, you know, along with that line, it is mostly going to be 1980s themed. Uh, We will be talking about Thor Love and Thunder, which is really apropos of the 1980s. But we're also going to talk about Highlander, The Terminator, Big Trouble in Little China, maybe Escape from New York. I don't know. We're going to pick up some other like, you know, fun 1980s stuff.
0: And the purpose of Hot Sci-Fi Summer is to have fun. Yes. Basically. It yes. is It is big dumb movies. Yeah. It is stuff that doesn't make you think too hard. Or, or makes
1: you laugh. That's also important. Yes. Yes. yes.
0: Makes you laugh. Which I'm going to be looking forward to kind of a break mm-hmm. from thinking hard mm-hmm. now that we have done Station Eleven. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> which is a book that which, makes you think hard.
0: It makes you think hard. Which, is which a I don't object yeah. to yeah. at all. It is a stumper though. Yeah. It does have some things in it that are not resolvable. Right. Which I look forward to talking to you about. Mm-hmm. If you haven't yet become a patron, please become a patron. You can become a patron. I'm saying that over and over because like I feel like in ads they say the thing you're supposed to do. It's important. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Okay. Yeah. Become a patron at patreon.com slash space the nation. Dan, what are some ways that people can support the show?
1: Uh, beyond becoming a patron, I mean, I mean, certainly sure. you can rate and review the show. You can tell your friends, you can tell your neighbors, you know, you can tell your colleagues, people are starting to return to work. Uh, you know spaces now like this is a great way if you're seeing your work wife or your work spouse and you know you haven't been in touch with them except via slack and they're like so what have you been into you can say there is this bitchin show called space the nation we
0: are great water cooler we are
1: awesome water cooler content it's you can uh, also
0: tweet about us or tweet to us yeah
1: i am at dan dresner she is at anna marie cox
0: dan how are you
1: so, Ana, like, I don't know if you have this, and, and it might be very different in Austin, but where I live, a long time ago, I started ranking months by, like, my favorite months, and June is, in fact, my favorite month. <laughs> so I'm doing pretty goddamn well. You know, it's.
0: It has Father's Day in it.
1: It has Father's Day in it, but that's not even the reason why I, I think about it as my favorite month. In this case, it's gonna be lovely because my daughter is graduating from high school, which is a big deal, but also. The the weather is lovely, the days are long. And I think actually one of my favorite things to do in civilization is an after dinner walk. Like I know that's Mm. that's incredibly like maybe that's banal, but like it's it's lovely to do.
0: Since we'll be talking about civilization, the pros and cons. Yes. I don't think you have to be in a civilization to take an after dinner walk.
1: That is fair.
0: I believe our very, very distant ancestors probably took after-dinner walks.
1: Let me put it this way, though. One of the pleasures of the after-dinner walk during civilization is encountering other people and not being worried that they are going to <laughs> stab you. So, put <laughs> it this way, Anna. One of my th- the themes, I think, is that everything is better with civilization sometimes. And so, this mm, is certainly
0: one of those. That is not what I got from this book.
1: Perhaps. Well, this will be a fun conversation, though. Yeah. Yeah. How are you, Anna?
0: I do not enjoy June in Texas. Fair enough, I figured, Uh, yeah. (laughs) We have reached the 100-degree portion of our summer. And people always ask, how do you deal? And it is like being in cold weather. Mm -hmm. You just don't go out much. Although I prefer it to cold weather. That's why I live here Mm -hmm. and no longer live in Minneapolis. Fair enough. Which, looking back, I cannot figure out how I survived as long as I did. Uh, But you know what? Like... in terms of like where it falls in the year mm-hmm. in a weird way i kind of agree that june is a it's a it's a good time yeah. it's like you're you're almost done right but I, not so far along that you feel like you haven't don't have time to finish what you wanted to do true. in the year that's
1: true i will confess that part of this might be and this is one of the one of the best things about being an academic to be honest anna is that you never had to change your internal like rhythms in terms of like the year because yeah. like when you were in school June always meant the end of school. And that was like, that meant summer. And that meant like the beginnings of all kinds of possibility. And as a professor, the nice thing about June is you're not teaching, you're writing, you're researching, you're like, you know, and you still have many months before the term starts. So you're not already freaking out about how little you've done. (laughs) So (laughs) it's the best month.
0: Dan, should we talk about Station Eleven a bit? We should. Now that we've caught up.
1: Yes. So to be clear, we are talking about the novel by Emily St. John Mandel. We are not talking about the miniseries that HBO Max did uh, very beginning December of 2021 and running into January of 2022. We will talk about that a little bit, but we're primarily focusing on the novel. And this has been one that has sort of been kicking around our brains, I think, ever since we... Began this podcast, and I particularly was a fan of it. I have loved this novel since I first read it, and the way I always describe it to others is that it might be the most hopeful post-apocalyptic novel I have ever read, which is an interesting combination. And it seemed fitting for June, frankly.
0: Yeah, yeah. I am the one who insisted that we do it, and then I delayed starting it, <laughs> and then wound up reading it in one day. Mm. So that's also it a is good. Yeah, yeah, it's good. I have more slightly more ambivalent feelings about it i think than you do but i am excited to talk about it and this idea of whether or not civilization is good or bad Mm -hmm. i don't you know spoiler alert i don't think she comes fully down on either side actually that's what makes it a hopeful post apocalyptic novel in a way
1: we will talk about this so i'm not entirely sure i agree but this will be an interesting conversation then
0: i mean i don't well again interesting conversation yes one of the things I thought about almost immediately when I was reading the book and have, and going through what I know is part of our script, which mm-hmm. is the Chekhov's what's-it. Yes. <laughs> it would be difficult to name a thing in this novel that is not a Chekhov's what's-it. Yeah,
1: it. yeah, yeah. So it, I mean, that part of that is the, the way the novel is structured, which is half of it takes place pre-pandemic, half of it takes place post-pandemic. And it's funny how the things recur that way. Yeah. Um, <sighs>
0: It's funny, the only things that don't... It, basically, if something is mentioned mm-hmm. in the pre-pandemic section, you will hear about it again. Oh, most <laughs> like, definitely, yes. yes. I, I thought about, actually, the one plot line I would have liked to see carry mm-hmm. forward, Miranda. Yes. It's Chekhov's Miranda is my nomination. Fair enough. She's a character that dies during the pandemic. And right. it's never clear, actually, like... You can have hope that she's not going to die, like right up until the end.
1: She's yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: like because she's a really important character, right? In,
1: uh, in some uh, way, right? And I and very ways, well drawn, yes. You know, which it leads to my Chekhov's what's it, which is the thing that Miranda creates, which is the comic book Station Eleven, which plays a pretty important part in the the plot of the novel itself. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. I don't really have a story behind the story for this one because it did. It was pretty big <laughs> people probably heard about this mm-hmm. i did text you a piece of information that about the book that i found when i was just googling very you know just casually which is that her next book mm-hmm. the glass hotel yes was recommended by obama
1: oh crap <laughs> Oh, no. Right? Oh, no. Long time <laughs> listeners of the pod and perhaps even short time listeners of the pod might be aware that Anna and I have been bedeviled by choosing books that Obama has recommended. Uh, you know, that are sci fi books that are Obama's like book wrecks. So I think it, the two that we've looked at, I believe, are the three body problem, which we did not like mm-hmm. quite as nope. much as anyone else did. And the Ministry for the Future, which I think it is safe to say we both hated, like yeah. actively disliked that book.
0: So. I mean, I think the one thing I will stand for for it mm-hmm. is that I thought it explained like this carbon coin idea really well.
1: sure okay
0: better than a typical white paper, <laughs> but there are probably white papers that do it just as well.
1: <laughs> no there are white papers that do it better again I will I will defend nonfiction writers. they are better than kim stanley robinson
0: is at explaining facts and the only other thing I, i wanted to note is again when i was very casually looking through wikipedia and whatnot mandel is married to an executive recruiter huh which slash playwright right but clark yes in the book yes has a role that i would say is pretty like executive Mm recruity. right like it's rehabilitating executives but she writes with a lot of knowledge about that particular yes she does you know career she does now Mm -hmm. i feel like we understand (laughs) i also want to just point out if people haven't already kind of put it together playwright and executive recruiter is an interesting combination yeah You know, Mm -hmm. like uh, not two things I I think you see together very often. I wonder if it's a Reese's Peanut Butter Cup situation or (laughs) more like milk and orange juice. Who knows? We should get on with the plot, however.
1: We should. So let's start with the plot. Uh, Let's begin with Act 1, The Play is the Thing. So, movie star Arthur Leander is playing King Lear in Toronto, and he is killing the role! Mm -hmm. By which I mean he has a heart attack in the middle of the play. Despite the immediate assistance of paramedic and trading, Jeevan Leander dies. Jeevan comforts Kirsten, one of the child actors in the production. After leaving the playhouse, Jeevan gets a call from a doctor friend warning him that the mysterious and super-infectious Georgian flu has arrived in Toronto and is spreading like wildfire. Uh, He goes to a supermarket, loads up on supplies, and goes to stay with his brother Frank. Almost all of the actors and crew that gather to mourn Arthur's death die within the next month, along with everyone else. Flash forward 20 years. Most of the world's population died from the Georgian flu. Kirsten, now an adult, is the star actress of the Traveling Symphony, a group of musicians and actors who perform Shakespeare and classical music around the Great Lakes region. Kirsten still reads, rather obsessively, a graphic novel called Station Eleven, set in the future. The rest of the book toggles between characters 20 years after the pandemic of the Georgian flu and characters in the years just before the end of civilization. Anna, one thing I liked about how the novel is structured is actually the casual way sort of St. John Mandel brings in the pandemic. It sort of is in a minor aside, like 15 pages into the book. Uh, Did that work for you? Yeah, Mm -hmm.
0: I guess. I mean, it's hard once a novel kind of infiltrates culture. Right. So you knew that was going to happen no matter what. That's true. Yes. Yes. But it was Uh, I guess the
1: way rereading it, it it was like, oh, all right. Oh, now it's a pandemic. Like it didn't come in until later
0: than I was expecting, I guess. Of course, it was hard not to think about the current pandemic. Yes. You know, reading it and how jealous I was of Jeevan um, for (laughs) being able to go to the supermarket and just like get stuff. Yeah. (laughs) Because. Everyone remembers in those early days, like I went, I remember going to Target and Whole Foods and just, that is a little bit like what the end of civilization will look like apparently. <laughs> just get the right? toilet paper. That's the important thing. Just get the toilet paper. Yeah. I think it's also funny. He explains to the woman, at first he lies and he's yeah. like, I run a shelter right. or something. Yeah, he said something <laughs> awkward. <laughs> and then he's like, actually, there's a really bad pandemic coming and the clerk thinks he's crazy. Yeah. So.
1: But in some ways, that, I, 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 I actually like that. That that in some ways that does show the collapse of civilization because yeah. he first feels compelled to lie for social reasons, and then finally it's like it doesn't matter. So you know, yeah,
0: yeah. Another Chekhov's what's it here is of course his brother is uh, uses a wheelchair. Yes, yes. So comes up later.
1: Yeah, that's true. <laughs> All right, let's move to Act Two, uh, Six Degrees of Arthur Leander. The Traveling Symphony arrives at St. Vincent by the Water to reunite with Jeremy and Charlie, two troop members they left behind uh, two years earlier because they were expecting a baby. Upon arriving, they find that their friends are missing, and the town is now under the control of the prophet, someone who collects young girls and claims them as his wives. After suggesting that the troupe leave one of their younger members, the traveling symphony decides to get the hell out of Dodge. They decide to go visit Severn City and the Museum of Civilization, a settlement where they believe they might find Jeremy and Charlie. En route, they discover a young stowaway who has fled the town, as she was promised to the prophet, and I think it's safe to say she is not interested in that whatsoever. Mm, Soon Twelve. As- She's twelve. Yes, Soon after, members of the troop start to disappear. First, Kirsten's ex, Saeed, then her best friend Dieter, and then a clarinet player. Kirsten and her friend August go searching, and after a rainstorm, find that the entire troop has disappeared. Understandably unnerved, they follow protocol and continue on to the museum, which is where everyone was expecting to rendezvous, hoping to be reunited with others. In flashback, we learn a bit about how Miranda... Arthur's first wife, met and married Arthur and how that marriage ended with her recognizing that Arthur was sleeping with her co-star Elizabeth at the most awkward dinner party in the history of Los Angeles. We also learn that Miranda is in fact the author of Station Eleven, the comic that Kirsten is obsessed with. Anna, while the Georgian flu might have been too aggressive to work the way that Mandel intended, and I think she said in interviews that she's gotten this not entirely correct.
0: Um, it, it passes too fast, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. It's, yeah.
1: it's too lethal. The the, the way yeah. that the disease is presented in the book, if you get it in the morning, you're dead in the afternoon or like in the evening, essentially. And that mm-hmm. if, if that's the case, yes, it would be it's easy it, to contain. It's easy to contain. You, you need yeah. a disease that is actually allows the host to spread it sufficiently. And that's not the way that this one works. Nonetheless, I did find that her depiction of what would happen during a truly devastating pandemic, and let's be very clear, COVID is not truly devastating in that way, in terms of the lethality or the collapse of civilization. Her treatment of this is actually quite evocative. And I was wondering, what was the detail that stood out for you? So for me, for example, it was the fact that gasoline goes stale after three years. And so therefore, Mm. people wouldn't be driving after just a few years.
0: This happens later in the book, but mm-hmm. it really got to me, mm-hmm. which is the disappearance of psychiatric medication. Yeah. 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 And I, I, it's funny because I've always been a fan of science fiction, and, and which is a lot of post-apocalyptic stuff. And you always think, what would I do? I've thought before about glasses, which actually happens in, in the book as well. Someone doesn't have glasses right. and, of course, functionally without sight. And it's also one I of the most to...
1: memorable twilight zone episodes <laughs> with, with Burgess <laughs> <Yes>. Meredith yeah
0: <laughs> yes mm-hmm. so i've thought before about oh what would happen you know if i lost my glasses for some reason as much as i depend on my psychiatric medication mm-hmm. i hadn't really thought through what would happen if it just stopped getting made hmm. and and also cuz i've also I've talked on the podcast before i've thought about what would happen if aa disappeared
1: ooh yeah
0: Right. Mm-hmm. Which I don't think it would, by the way. No, I think that enough. I think that AA would would be something kind <laughs> of like religion, but in a better way. Although I think there's probably good religion, too, out there in this right. post-apocalyptic I, world. I agree. I
1: also think AA would be one of those useful networks that in as civilizations collapsing, I'm presuming there would be people within AA that were like you would there would be trust. And that yeah. would be a crucial element in terms of surviving.
0: Yeah, I think in this particular apocalypse, you'd have AA continue. Yeah. I just don't like to think about what life would be like without psychiatric meds. I understand. Honestly, yeah. You could. It, it's funny. I was actually going through like a junk box mm-hmm. the other day and found uh, bottles of pills. Oh. That I had put aside. No, fine. They're good okay. pills. Okay. Like they're my my med. Oh, ah, okay. Sorry. Good. So and maybe and that actually because I just finished the book made me think. Well. It, you could probably find them, like, in factories and stuff, mm-hmm. but still, ugh, like, that it's upsetting. It is like, interesting
1: because, like, again, because of the lethality of this, I wonder whether, like, you'd see the sort of ravaging of, like, pharmacies and supermarkets and so forth that would have otherwise happened. Although I will say the way that the novel treats it, it does seem like civilization sticks around for at least a couple of weeks before, like, you know— there, yeah. There's news, at least, and so forth. So that would have been long enough for people to And wave. it's
0: also true that, like, Wellbutrin yeah. and Seroquel, like, aren't going to be the things that most people steal mm-hmm. from yeah. a pharmacy. So right. I'd probably stop by the Ransack Pharmacy and just, like, get my armloads mm-hmm. of, of those meds and, you know, hopefully last Interestingly a while.
1: enough, that was also the most effective scene in the movie version of World War Z is when they go into the pharmacy.
0: And get not pain pills they
1: didn't get pain pills what they got was oh. uh remember brad pitt's daughter had asthma and so they needed asthma oh that's medication. right
0: that's right that's right yeah that's
1: right yeah. all right let us move on to act three talk about a flight delay So back in the past, we learned that Jeevan was a paparazzo who snapped an emotionally revealing photo of Miranda, the night of the awkward dinner party, and an entertainment reporter who broke the story about Arthur leaving Elizabeth and their son Tyler for his co-star Lydia, who winds up being his third wife. Jeevan survived the Georgian flu, we fast forward a couple of years, uh, by staying barricaded with Frank in Frank's apartment. As their rations run low, however, Frank, a paraplegic, commits suicide, recognizing that he will not be able to survive in sort of cold Toronto in the the wilds, while Jeevan heads out of the city. Years and thousands of miles later, he does wind up in Virginia as sort of the local doctor. How did the Museum of Civilization come to pass? I'm glad you asked. In the last days of air travel, Arthur's friend Clark, his second wife Elizabeth, and Arthur's son Tyler are flying to Toronto for Arthur's funeral. Because of the pandemic, however, they are diverted to the Severn City Airport. Miraculously, no one at the airport is infected. As everything grinds to a halt, some of the folks leave, a few of the pilots take the planes away, but Clark, Elizabeth, and Tyler stay. Anna, if you had to live at an airport, which one would you pick?
0: fittingly i suppose uh-huh. rather than ironically yes. i would choose the two airports i know best oh. which are both great airports okay the minneapolis airport mm-hmm. i'm sure you've been is yes
1: oh that's a massive a lot airport of, yeah
0: it's huge yeah. Yeah. and it has some great food options and it has it has the more mall like mm-hmm. feel like it's it's centered itself around food and shopping right. rather than air travel yeah. in a lot of ways and it has like lounge, has some, several good lounges mm-hmm. and whatnot. So that seems like a good option. Mm-hmm. Another good option yeah. would be the Austin Airport. The, the, because the, it has a lot of great food.
1: The barbecue in the Austin Airport is quite good, if memory serves. Yeah, yeah. which
0: wouldn't last forever, no. but it would last for a while. And you could enjoy a lot of barbecue and tacos. And also their kitchen guys.
1: facilities, which are important, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. And also they have live music every once in a while. <laughs> really? <laughs> so cool. I feel like... There's at least a chance that you'd get
1: Like there'd like, be a band trapped or something? Actually,
0: yeah. you know what? It's fucking Austin. There's going to be a band. Oh, yeah. There will be multiple bands. There will be bands in the Austin airport at any given moment. So yeah. I think that's another reason why it would be a good choice. And you, my friend?
1: So it's interesting. Like, you're picking larger airports. And, like, if I was going by the larger airport category...
0: ATX is, like...
1: ATX is it's, not it's huge, medium. but yeah, yeah. But, like... The Charlotte Airport would also be good for those reasons. And, like, I have to admit, even O'Hare... Well, I don't know. No, like, the only reason I say that is that... Oh, God, the Frontera Grill big. is... Dead. Yeah, yeah. But my, my instinct is not to pick a big airport, though. My instinct would be to go for, like, the South Bend Airport in Indiana. Or, like, a large regional airport that is modern. That has been, like, built very recently.
0: Des Moines?
1: Maybe Des Moines. I don't know. I haven't been there recently. I'm trying to think of, like, where... like. In the last five years, I've given talks at a few places where I've had to fly into a regional airport. Mm-hmm. And it was, I think this was like, this was sort of built with like the Obama, you know, recovery money. And I just mm-hmm. remember being struck at how nice these airports were and how underpopulated they are. And I confess that I think that I would find attractive just because I don't know how many people I'd want to be around during the
0: I agree yeah. about that. Yeah. The smallishness of the Severn Severn Severn, Severn, Severn City, City, yeah. Severn yeah, City yeah. does seem appealing. Mm-hmm. I'm, yeah, I think I don't remember how modern Des Moines is. I know Des Moines gets a lot of money, <laughs> I'm
1: sure. Yes, uh,
0: so I feel like it's probably pretty modern. I don't, again, no strong memories, mm-hmm. but. You're right. Like a regional airport would be nice. Yeah, that's uh, what I tend to, to think. Yeah. So, so that's an interesting question. Although they aren't that nice to be stranded at if you know you're going to be stranded for a normal amount of time.
1: That is fair. That's true because it's it, it's not a ton of eating options. One of the things I was surprised by in the in the in Mandel's book is that they correctly like raid the restaurants that are in the airport first and then they go to like the first class lounges. I was surprised what they didn't do was go into the planes themselves. Because um, there would have been I food I think there. they
0: do eventually. I
1: assume so, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. This part of the book is interesting. I mean, mm-hmm. I think it's hard as a science fiction fan, if you've read any amount of post-apocalyptic fiction, to not compare your idea yeah, of yeah, what, yeah. how it would go to the mm-hmm. way the author says it will go. Mm-hmm. I remember my one critique of the uh, Severin City Airport is that that is an optimistic setup <laughs> well i will say the one thing I will that s- goes pretty well yeah
1: it does but i will say this the thing i like but
0: maybe b- again it's smaller right that's actually and
1: also mandel the one like the one sort of exposition that i thought was necessary was to explain that apparently part of the reason that they managed to survive is that mandel said like when a few people like left oh, yeah, the airport yeah, right. it turns out that people who would have been driving there like had like stay away pandemic and so on and so forth so mm-hmm. that explains why they didn't get as many people coming in
0: and I I think, I I'm, mean, I'm curious if Mandel has pointed out the reason why she made it so quick in its fatality is that it does get burned out.
1: Yeah. Right? Like, yeah.
0: that is something that would need to happen in order for this long-term you know, recovery. book to play out. Well, for it to be something that you could avoid eventually. Well, that, that or you could stay quarantined from, and then not have to worry about it in the future. Maybe. I mean, there, there
1: was another way she could have done this, which would have just been that the people who survived. Oh, I'm not saying there's not another way she could yeah. have done it.
0: I'm just saying like that is a piece of the plot that you need. Yeah, One way to solve it would be to have this very fast-acting
1: Right. The other virus. way would have been just the people who survived were immune somehow, and so therefore it yeah. seems to be a, a problem.
0: Yeah. I'm trying to think, because I think the way she did it, the way she did, mm-hmm. or one reason, although I guess it would work still with your yeah. version, is the plane that doesn't come to the airport, which is... You mean the the Very virus haunting. doesn't come to the airport? Oh, the, oh! You mean the plane no. that that is that, is
1: just goes away and doesn't yeah, it yeah parks yeah. at
0: the end of the uh, airstrip? So and that was it, never comes in.
1: That was one of those things that was extremely haunting, and I'm actually a little yeah. I, one thing I found slightly troubling about it was that Mandel. I I was expecting a little more about that. Like I was sort of surprised. You know, you don't hear about the plane ever again.
0: No, it turns up pretty significantly. Oh,
1: that's right. But like, (laughs) look it this way. Remember,
0: there are no checkoffs. What's I mean, everything's a checkoff. Right, let me
1: rephrase. What you don't hear about is anyone trying to get out of that plane. And that's the thing that's kind of weird if you think about it.
0: Except you do have Clark pondering what it would have taken to keep everyone inside. And I believe the implication is that they did it via, you know, violence.
1: Probably, yeah.
0: Is that the people that were trying to be responsible, mm-hmm. that is to say, to keep that plane quarantined, yeah. committed violence in order to keep the other passengers from escaping.
1: That's entirely possible. I will say this in the miniseries, that plane gets a little more attention. Okay. And there's some interesting details that are added, I guess.
0: Because it's, it's, yeah. I mean, it, it also, that it is, it's one of the places in the novel that I thought, what would I do?
1: Right. If you were in the plane, or if you were not,
0: if you were on the plane, yeah. If you knew you're in a plane that was carrying a deadly disease, yeah. and the pilots are so conscientious and dedicated that they decide
1: that the best for thing, you, right. yeah.
0: That the best thing to do is to just park, stay it. put, and park. Also, and see what happens. I have to say, although there might have been a, someone, she doesn't talk about this, but surely some people are immune.
1: Right. And like, that's the thing. Like, you know, also, that's an agonizing way to go if you think about it, because mm-hmm. you basically are being told, yeah, you know, this is an infected plane. So we're just going to sit here and let everyone get in, you know, die.
0: Yeah. Well, because they're white. Like, they're all already infected. You can't. Right. Like, that's, true. that's the yeah, thing yeah. about it being a plane is it yeah. there's no chance that you're not infected. Well, you've just done it.
1: That's true. Although, again, one of the things we've learned from COVID is that, in fact, depending on how the disease spreads, which we don't know, and it's kept vague. They but,
0: make very okay. We're this is we're kind of in the weeds, but yeah. she makes very clear that you don't that it. This is highly, highly. It's dangerous. extremely
1: it, yes. They're it, yes. So
0: if you've been on a flight together, that's
1: probably fair. Yeah, fair enough.
0: Yeah, you've been infected. Yes. So and that in so anyway. that was the only
1: problem I had with the original Severn City Airport thing was that it was the miracle of everyone in the airport. There was no single case of it. Whereas this thing is like spreading like wildfire everywhere, it was just that that was the one. Whereas part, you
0: know. I would say like again, like that's where you kind of have to have that it's so fast acting. Yeah, maybe. But the problem is that, is that
1: they're like, again, it's at airports. Like they they were flying from New York, so the idea that like no one got it somehow, and, and, and even Mandel, like there's a paragraph which says Clark like miraculously, you know, is in a cab with the where the driver isn't infected and is like you know in the yeah
0: that's true that and that's true yeah
1: all of that but that's fair.
0: For the most part, she does think through a lot of the things we're talking about, yeah. by the way. So, to dear listener. Yes. So we're being very nitpicky. Oh, no, no, no. And, like,
1: in some ways, it, it's a testament to the novel in that there's some evocative things, like that plane that is the plague plane, basically, that, like, they're pretty powerful. And it, 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 if anything, as I said, I, it just made me think about it even more. Mm. Anyway. The denizens of Severn City uh, create a sustainable settlement in the airport. Over time, Clark becomes the curator of the Museum of Civilization, where he collects artifacts from the past world, such as passports, engines, and iPhones. Most of the airport survivors adapt to their new life. Elizabeth and Tyler, however, decide to embrace religious prophecy instead. Elizabeth, with her new age conviction that everything happens for a reason, interprets the pandemic as a punishment of the bad and a sparing of those who are good.
0: That's not a New Agey thing. I, you know, all right, so... It is not, period. Okay,
1: Sorry. all right, no, no, go ahead, explain why. Or, or, or it's both... Me,
0: Everything happens for a reason is kind of like religion. I mean, not, okay. it's Christianity for sure.
1: I guess so, but let me put it this way. the way, First of all, the first time, this is interesting, the first time we hear Elizabeth say everything happens for a reason is not because of the pandemic. It's because she's having an affair with Arthur. And she says that to Miranda. And I was always just like, are you fucking kidding me with that line? But what I kept thinking when she said that was like, and I hate to, Put it this way, but it's like that millennial thing of like, well, you know, the universe is speaking to me somehow or the universe is sending me a signal. So you're right. Yeah. That, that, so let me put it this way. It is you're correct.
0: That it's, Her point of view, maybe from a new age. Perspective, yes, that's what but I'm I think. It's to say. pretty important that actually that. Way of thinking about the world mm-hmm. goes back right. to prehistory.
1: That's fair, and I, in some ways, like, it, yeah.
0: it actually is. It's a part of the novel, yeah. kind of. Yes, that this way of thinking is a way that people have tried to make sense of their world. Right,
1: and particularly Since, by the before way, before civilization, it's not just that. It's a way that people have tried to make sense of calamity and catastrophe. Yeah. That that is in some ways extremely important. So that you, you're right. That is a fair point. That this is not only New Agey, but the, the way that Elizabeth talks about it.
0: And let's it's also to- important that it's not New age because her son doesn't go with the New age No, AG he
1: most certainly does not. That's fair. Yeah. So anyway, the point is, is that two years in... <laughs> the
0: point is... <laughs> the point is, is, that two years in,
1: they leave with a religious cult, and the big reveal is that 18 years later, the prophet is, in fact, Tyler, Arthur Leander's disturbed son. So, speaking of which, Anna, uh, you know, let's, yes. let's talk about the role religion plays in Station Eleven. I think it's safe to say that Elizabeth and Tyler are not the best advocates for the role that faith plays in Apocalypse. <sighs>
0: I don't even think they're the best advocates for this idea that everything happens for a reason.
1: <laughs> they certainly you are know. not. No, but, that's fair. Like yeah.
0: you can, as I opened with, mm-hmm. you can believe that in some general way and not and and still have room for choice and still have room for agency, a- and also have room for tragedy. Mm-hmm. I mean, my point of view as a believer has always been: if you believe in this. Thing Mm -hmm. which I don't think has to be in any way human or understandable as a conscience Mm -hmm. um, or as a consciousness, it must be so big and so Mm -hmm. beyond our understanding Mm -hmm. that things even like a pandemic are part of some pattern that I have no idea what it could possibly mean, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. That it it and it also might be the uh, the kind of thing that for this thing that may or may not exist. I'm always open to the idea that it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Not open to the idea, but yeah. like I won't argue with you about it. Is right. so trivial that that's not even on that being's radar. Hmm. You know, or it's a part. It's it's a butterfly wing in a larger plan. Uh you know, fair enough. Like it it is the the pandemic is merely the butterfly mm-hmm. and not and not and not the <laughs> and not, yeah. Yeah. Not the thing that was caused by the butterfly, but actually, like, in in the grand scheme of things, that minuscule an event. Mm-hmm. So. I, I, I wanted to ask I'm, you
1: something else, by the way, which is, I, I, did, I did think that you might like this book, if for no other reason, that one of the things that struck me, how do I put this gently? It is safe to say you are not a fond of child characters or child <laughs> actors. And one of
0: the things that. He's I, a little shit. No, it's it,
1: true. But it's not just him, <laughs> because. When when we see Kirsten as a kid, like the only time we, the only substantial scene in the book that we see her is when she's like coloring during a conversation with between Arthur and Miranda, and Kirsten acts like a little shit too. and I was struck by that. Like, but the kids are not good kids in this book.
0: Except we meet we first meet her when she's been traumatized by
1: Arthur's death,
0: which she is. I mean. Hard to hate on a kid who's experiencing trauma. <laughs> but that said, Tyler is a
1: child of divorce. Like, the, I mean, there are a few, Tyler is a few moments as a kid where you actually like. I, there's a there's a scene very at the at the end of the book where Arthur is, has a phone call with Tyler, where Tyler comes yeah. off as very sweet because he yeah. But mostly the children in this book are total little shits. It was just amazing. They
0: they, they kind of are. Yeah. Um, except I mean, it, it depends, right? Yeah. Because also the twelve year old that stows away, hard to hate on her too. Like, yeah.
1: Oh no no, with well, that. Yes, that's I true. thought
0: you were yeah. going to go for specifically with the child actors.
1: No, I was talking about the child actor. I was talking about Kirsten.
0: <laughs> oh, it, but there's two other, they die. So. That's true. But also like the
1: other thing was that the child actors didn't get along. Kirsten felt like, you know.
0: That's right, she, that's <laughs> right. And also there, it's a good use of child actors, they don't talk. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> in this particular production of Lear. Which is, by the way,
1: interesting because apparently this production of Lear that is in the, in the book was based on a real production of Lear that I assume Mandel must have read about or watched in Toronto in yeah. 2007 or something.
0: Just a little more about the role of religion. Yeah. I, I want to talk about this a lot more mm-hmm. later. Okay. But what I will say is that to—and I feel like this is something that's kind of almost understood when we talk about religion, but I'll say it, say it out loud and clearly, which is that for me, it's not about religion but faith.
1: Yes, that's fair. Um, so
0: we were talking about religion. And I was. I, I actually probably should have used the word faith mm-hmm. there because they're different things.
1: True, and I, I would also say that the way that perhaps Elizabeth and particular— Because I'm not religious. Right, but but I guess my point is is that, as I read it, Elizabeth, but particularly Tyler, I think oh, are less Oh, interested. he's religious. Yeah, they're religious.
0: And religion yeah. and faith can go together. Right,
1: but not always. Right, yeah.
0: but not always. And what I would say about—if I could change your question a bit, okay, it'd be the do. role of faith. You actually says what you said, it's yeah. the role of faith, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Faith is different than religion, and one of the things I think this book makes an argument for is faith.
1: That's fair. Yes.
0: Not in a, a deity, right? But faith in other people. In community. And. In community. Yeah. In art. No. Oh, yes. So. Okay. We'll talk about that more. All right.
1: All right, let's close with Act 4, All's Well That Ends Well. On their way to the Museum of Civilization, Kirsten and August find a group of the Prophet's men holding Saeed hostage. They had kidnapped Saeed and planned to trade him for the runaway child slash bride, but a young boy has his doubts about the Prophet. Kirsten and August kill the men and free Saeed, who explains that Dieter unfortunately was killed, uh, but the clarinetist had escaped and warned the troop, hence they took an alternate route to the Severn City airport. The trio head that way as well, but the prophet catches up to them and finds Kirsten on the side of the road. He plans to execute her, but in the process starts quoting lines about the undersea from the Station Eleven comic. Kirsten quotes lines back, and this distracts Tyler long enough that his young, doubting sentry shoots and kills him, and then, somewhat horrifyingly, takes his own life. The trio arrives at the Museum of Civilization, where they are reunited with Charlie, Jeremy, and the rest of the Traveling Symphony. Clark takes Kirsten up to the control tower of the airport and through a telescope shows her a town to the south with electric lights, suggesting that civilization is taking root yet again. Five weeks later, Kirsten leaves with the traveling symphony for the town to the south and parts unknown. Anna, am I wrong in thinking that this was actually a pretty hopeful book as post-apocalyptic novels go?
0: Of, of course. Yeah. And I would add that's not just because of the electricity. Mm-hmm. In fact, one of my nitpicks with the book uh, <laughs> is, I think it didn't need that. Oh, I it liked would still it. Still be hopeful. But, it would still be hopeful without it. Mm-hmm. It, it, because the hope in this book isn't centered around technology; it's around people.
1: Yes, although I so this is where I, I liked it, and I also think it was that was the sort of hint that maybe civilization will be returning, and this might be where you and I. And I'm not
0: anti-civilization, but I think that this book, I I wish, again, a nitpick, I sort of wish that there had been a kind of build back better (laughs) (laughs) line, (laughs) because this book is also critical of civilization, too.
1: Yes. Although it's, I, I, it's... In
0: some very specific ways that aren't incompatible with building back a new civilization. Right.
1: Right. And indeed, I mean, for me at least, one of the very charming things I think when I first read this book was the idea that there would be a traveling symphony in the first place. The idea yes. that, you know, again, to quote from Star Trek Voyager, which is what the book does, survival is insufficient, that there had to be more.
0: Right. And so
1: I love the idea that this that a traveling symphony could would be a viable enterprise in this world.
0: And... Actually, maybe the point I should be making here
1: mm-hmm.
0: is that: Do you really think civilization is gone? There is a traveling symphony. Ah, what defines civilization, Dan? Fair is enough. it lights or is it Shakespeare?
1: I think it could be both of the, I think it's both of those things. I, but I, I will grant you that Shakespeare is more important in terms of civilization. You can say that. Yeah, and I think that's the argument
0: she makes. That's too. fair. Yes. that's what I say. Like, okay. I don't think this is a pro civil, like pro technology book at all
1: no 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 it's a pro but it is a pro-civilization book
0: and again but it's how we define civilization yes i think it's a pro-civilization book but it it asks us to consider Mm
1: -hmm.
0: what is really the definition of civilization
1: i guess i I suppose the way i would put it is that electricity is not necessary for civilization but i do think that it would facilitate its return let's put it that way
0: again yeah
1: yeah (laughs) yeah
0: Is civilization really gone? Yeah,
1: oh, fair enough.
0: You know, but it only—I mean, because you know, the Severn City Airport seems pretty civilized.
1: It does seem civilized. It's true. But the fact is, but but the fact that there's a museum of civilization also suggests that there were things that were lost.
0: I feel like one thing I should grant to the book yeah. is I don't think she has the answers on all this.
1: No, God no. no, no, no.
0: That she's leaving these questions open. Yeah, I don't know if she would take a side in this argument that we're having. I think she wants to ask the question, which she does not answer. Mm-hmm. Is civilization lights, or is civilization Shakespeare? Uh, Fair enough. I don't think she comes down, like, fully on a side. Yeah, yeah. No, that's fair. And that... You you don't have to. Like, that's not the... That, but I, in if fact, if nothing else, th- authors that really come down on a side are like Kim Stanley Robinson. Yeah, and, <laughs> and,
1: and frankly, not very interesting. They're, th- those are books that are interesting to read once, and then that's it. But like yeah. the books that you chew over are the ones where there's some ambiguity in there. But yeah. I would say the other thing is is that
0: I think you have an opinion about this that's pretty strong. <laughs>
1: no, no, no. You're actually you're actually persu- you're, you're making you're reminding me that one of the reasons I liked the book was in some ways St. John Mandel's point of. You know, Shakespeare is important, too, that, like, although mm-hmm. it's worth noting, I will say this, it's worth noting that even within the traveling symphony, there is dissent about this, about, like, you know, it can't just be Shakespeare. Like, you know, do you want to have some new stuff and things like right. that? Right.
0: And it is so- that civilization? Yes. Right? I think it I mean, is, yeah. it, Again, I don't think she's making, she's coming down on a side. No, no,
1: she's not. At all. That's I
0: think she's asking us to consider. Yeah, that's fair. What is it that we that we really want it to be? Mm-hmm. And what is it? And how does it, quote unquote, come back?
1: Right. Now those things consistent. That's fair.
0: But we've, we've been arguing about some big questions, yeah. but I have another question, Dan. You do,
1: Anna? Well, what is
0: it? Yes. It, it, is there IR in the book?
1: Anna, I have walked my entire life through this tarnished world, and there is IR everywhere you see. <laughs> what is interesting about Station Eleven is the way it starts out, however, I think, by eliminating a lot of what we consider IR now. And the question is whether that is accurate or not. So one of the themes that is shot throughout the book is the collapse of borders. There's actually a discussion in the Severn City Airport section about how the new generation born post-pandemic, when they look at maps, frankly, don't understand what borders are because they don't exist. And that's it's fair that that's confusing. And indeed, when we look at the Traveling Symphony's route, they clearly cross the U.S.-Canada border multiple times in their route, and it doesn't, doesn't really matter. It is possible that this would happen in a radically depopulated world. Um, It, again, is worth remembering that according to the Georgian flu, you know, and I think there's reference to this, something like 99% of the world's population dies, which means that you're talking about a, a world that goes from, let's say, you know, close to 10 billion to more like 10 million people. So that is a suddenly dramatic underpopulating of the globe. That said, you know, let me put it this way, Anna. As you said, electricity is not necessary for civilization. Electricity is not necessary for borders either. And so it's worth remembering that states and empires existed long before electricity. And I do tend to think that they would have emerged or at least persisted even in this Georgian flu kind of post-apocalyptic world. OK, I've a quibble. OK, go ahead.
0: Are empires the exact same thing as borders?
1: Empires are not the exact same things as borders. That's a fair point. Because indeed, one of the things about empires is that they very often are permeable structures with like, clearly defined cores, but but unclear peripheries.
0: That I think is actually really what's happening here. Maybe is that borders are pointless because no because there's no geography, like no one's making maps. The thing again, but I, there is definitely empire because there are certain cities and certain empire. I mean, there's definitely such a thing, right? As I think
1: what I'm wondering is whether twenty like years a
0: place, right?
1: What I'm wondering is whether twenty years after a pandemic, would there have been an entity that would have tried to say, "All right, let's create the American Empire again." And I do, you know, it's.
0: an I interesting think it would question. be funny to see them try.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I terrible. think that's
0: a no, that's a book I would read. Yeah. <laughs> I would. Oh my god, I would totally read a book in which, mm-hmm. like the. Some person who had been a very young congressman—I don't know, like Madison Cawthorn oh, or somebody—like, like, like or maybe not the right choice. Let's but, say Marjorie but,
1: Saint- uh, Marjorie Green. Yeah, yeah.
0: this decides like they're going to restart Congress or something. <laughs> like, that is
1: possible. Yeah. <laughs> um, that would. Be-
0: and we still have the building, you know.
1: <laughs> well, wait, just,
0: wasn't that be Congress? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. I, I think there was a show. It was a show that was on about 15 years ago where i think the premise was is that like all electricity suddenly stopped working and then it flashed mm. forward like a decade or so and it only lasted for a season or something but it, it, that was the premise is that suddenly electricity stopped working
0: and of course readers of the stand will note yeah that they get electricity working pretty fast in boulder yeah because it's a dam right and like you, there are other dams you could also have electricity you wouldn't have the it wouldn't be as common as it is now, right. but there would be places where it would be not impossible. This is the interesting
1: question about whether or not, like, if, as there are more electric cars out there, whether the gasoline going flat, you know, or stale would matter as much. So that's an interesting point. The other aspect of this is, that's interesting is that the post-pandemic world that Mandel you know, paints is definitely defined by anarchy. But what is interesting is that clearly she thinks the anarchy would evolve over time. So in the the structure of the novel, it is very clear that the first few years right after the Georgian flu hits are extremely Hobbesian. And it's barely referenced. In fact, what was interesting, one of the things that was interesting to me is that Kirsten, like, has blacked out her memory of the first year post-pandemic. And that's a conscious choice by her that clearly lots of – no, 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 it's – she says in that interview with the newspaper Well, man,
0: to the degree it can be conscious. Right,
1: exactly. But let's, Yes. Yeah.
0: She does not want to remember, she want so to she remember. does not try to remember. Yeah.
1: Whereas a generation later, it, it's clearly more Lockean, which is there's there's a definite wariness of strangers. And, you know, it, it, the world still can occasionally be unsafe, as, as the plot of the book makes clear. But nonetheless, there is still some mutual exchange. There is still trust. Um the Traveling Symphony has built up significant amounts of soft power as they sort of travel around. And so it does suggest that, you know, the reemergence of electricity I think does hint at a future world that might even be more interconnected. And that and and so in some ways that's I found fascinating.
0: Dan, do you have a question for me?
1: I do, Anna. Is there a All critique right. of capitalism in this book?
0: Dan how many dollar signs would capitalism have <laughs> tattooed on its wrist if we counted the number of people it's killed? <laughs> now, huh? I,
1: actually, I have to ask this. Like, this was this was something that was interesting. I assume that this was just a norm now in this society that like yeah. anyone who kills someone, they got to get tattooed. Like, that's the yeah. Thing. For
0: the people who may not have have read yeah. the book, it is like tears right. tattooed. Um, you know supposedly the jailhouse tradition mm-hmm. it is a tradition to tattoo your wrist with the no. implement yes used to kill someone if you've made a kill which utility i see right mm-hmm. especially if you're only just now coming out of hobbesian world yes. however it is interesting to me to ask what would keep someone from doing that even if they haven't killed anyone because the reason to have it would be i am dangerous you want you should know which is funny i i I, it, I is capable i am capable of killing i
1: think you're right, right? like
0: that's why you'd want to broadcast it right? i think you're
1: right but that's not how it re- reads in the book no no yeah. no
0: but but it's all, it, for two it's for both yeah. right yeah, yeah. it's like this is this is a memento mori yeah. this is a reminder that life is life is precious mm-hmm. and i have taken it mm-hmm. and don't fuck with me right yeah yeah yep yeah. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so i think it's funny i think she does a little bit of an end run around capitalism in the same way she does ir mm-hmm. right yeah like we just sort of get rid of it
1: yes yes
0: and it money is not a thing even 20 years ahead right. which i would actually want to ask an anthropologist slash economist about surely i mean i guess well, the thing I kept trade routes are far enough apart, right, and that the idea of having some kind of promise to pay may be difficult. Maybe it
1: did seem to be like barter, like. But this was actually one of the things I was surprised by in the reread because I thought I this had been said in the novel, but I don't think it was. Which was, did people clearly didn't pay for the traveling symphony? Like there were like the traveling symphony didn't earn anything in I, terms of. What I thought
0: it, it was did. implied that they got like room and board.
1: I wasn't sure about that. Like, I thought they kind of bivouacked, you know, as they were performing, but maybe that would make much more sense. And I think I sort of it might have been that I assumed that, but it wasn't actually said in the book.
0: Yeah, Yeah. you're correct. It wasn't actually said. And that's another sort of maybe end run. Yeah, yeah. Kind of. Yeah. You know, I want to talk about something else, which is that the more I got into this book Mm -hmm. and once I had this realization, it wouldn't go away. Mm -hmm. This is a book about work. Hmm. and labor Mm -hmm. and craft Mm. and calling Mm. and what those things mean and to take it kind of in order Mm -hmm. i think she when i say i think she's ambivalent about civilization Mm -hmm. one of the things she has a critique yeah of our modern late stage capitalist world Mm -hmm. right and one of them is you know quasi marxist and it's a critique of the way that our labor is separated from us right Mm -hmm. the 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 value of our labor is separated from um the work that we do Mm -hmm. and she has a section and and in general this gets communicated because there are some really beautiful passages about the invisibility of labor in this late-stage capitalist world Mm -hmm. that we get the benefits of it without actually thinking about it there's a really kind of i'm going to read a a kind of long passage Mm because if you haven't read the book i think this is for me it was it was where the it was evocative. You know, of it. Yeah. Consider the snow globe. <laughs> Consider the mind that invented those miniature storms, the factory worker who turned sheets of plastic into white flakes of snow, the hand that drew the plan for the miniature Severn City with its church steeple and city hall, the assembly line worker who watched the globe glide past on a conveyor belt somewhere in China. Consider the white gloves on the hands of the woman who inserted the snow globe into boxes to be packed into larger boxes, crates, shipping containers. Consider the card games played below decks in the evenings on the ship carrying the containers across the ocean, a hand stubbing out a cigarette in an overflowing ashtray, a haze of blue smoke and dim light, The cadence of half a dozen languages united by common profanities. Mm. The sailors' dreams of land and women. These men for whom the ocean was a gray line horizon to be traversed in ships the size of overturned skyscrapers. Consider the signature on the shipping manifest when the ship reached port. A signature unlike any other on Earth. The coffee cup in the hand of the driver delivering the boxes to the distribution center the secret hopes of the UPS man carrying the boxes of snow globes from there to Severn City. Hmm. Okay.
1: So this might be where I, I think I slightly disagree with you in that that reads to me like a peon to capitalism. Actually. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. All
0: right. No, she's saying we—and we are separated from that. She's saying that what civilization has done is made that invisible. And in fact, if I can quote again, yeah. There had always been a massive, delicate infrastructure of people, all of them working unnoticed around us. And when people stop going to work, the entire operation grinds to a halt. Uh, okay. She's literally saying, Dan, <laughs> but we don't see it. That it's invisible until it stops working.
1: OK, but I, I guess the, my read on that then was was her. And by the way, this is this is the
0: it's not a critique of like capitalism. Right. It's a critique of the way that we now consume things. I, and I would say specifically late stage capitalism, where it is invisible, where people don't think about the labor that's gone into the snow globe. She's thought about it.
1: I guess I mean, that's more like a, hey, we're taking this for granted and it's pretty awesome and we shouldn't take it for granted that's different she might from a be critique. saying that
0: she might be saying she might no, no, no. That, but funny. i don't again i don't think she's actually coming down really on a side but she does the rest of the books i want to talk so Hold, more, no no, no right? but i want
1: to okay no you no, you get all right go ahead yeah go ahead
0: because i think that to the degree she does come down on a side mm-hmm. again i don't think she's arguing that we should get rid of no she's of certainly not yeah yeah. Right. I don't think she's arguing that the pandemic would be a good no. thing or that the, the, that period would be. a good No, she's thing. not saying
1: Thanos was right.
0: Right. I think one of the things she's evoking mm-hmm. is this idea that when we do strip away like these vestiges of late capitalism, we get a much more direct relationship between ourselves and our labor mm. and our craft mm-hmm. and our calling, mm. which are different things.
1: All right, keep going because I want to. Because there's a at some point I want to intervene, but but you okay you've got some room. Go.
0: I'm just making my argument. Yeah. So she spends a lot of time talking about why different characters choose different careers, mm-hmm. and I mean a lot of time. Like yeah. once you, again, once I notice this. No, no, no <laughs> like it's, it's everywhere.
1: It's definitely a part of Miranda's story. It's a part of Jeevan's story. It's a part of Clark's story.
0: It's part of Arthur's. Part of story. Arthur's
1: story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, mm-hmm.
0: and and also she talks about what careers they find fulfilling. Right. And she has another passage I want to uh, read from because she talks about people becoming ghosts. Right. This is during invisible. Clark's interview
1: with, like, someone. Yeah.
0: Right. Because one of the, what Clark does is he's an executive rehabilitator. Right. He does, yes. right? He's, he's doesn't. He's not a headhunter. He makes the heads that are there better. Right. right? Yeah. And he, what they do, it's actually pretty funny satire in some ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's very Jonathan Franzen kind of mm-hmm. moment to, like, make fun of this, but they do, like, a 360 review of the person. And so Clark is is doing a 360 review of some executive, and he talks to one of the executive's, you know, employees, and she says, (laughs) so he's talking to a woman named Mm Dahlia, right? And and he asks her for criticisms of her boss. And she says, I think adulthood's full of ghosts. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. I'm not sure I quite. I'm talking about these people who've ended up in one life instead of another, and they're just so disappointed. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) They've done what's expected of them. Mm -hmm. They want to do something different, but it's impossible now. There's mortgage, kids, whatever. They're trapped. Dan's like that. Not you, Dan. Oh, okay. (laughs) The Dan.
1: She's talking (laughs) about Hey, screw you. (laughs) I forgot that was Dan. Yeah.
0: And then Clark responds, you don't think he likes his job then? Hmm. Correct, she said, but I don't think he even realizes it. You probably encounter people like him all the time, high-functioning sleepwalkers, essentially. What was it in this statement that made Clark want to weep? He was nodding, taking down as much as he could. Do you think he'd describe himself as unhappy in his work? No, Dahlia said, because I think people like him think work is supposed to be drudgery, punctuated by very occasional moments of happiness. But when I say happiness, I mostly mean distraction.
1: Hmm.
0: So that is work. That is what she's saying, that work can be. Yes. Work can also be fulfilling. Right. Arthur is an example of someone who has found a fulfilling calling. Miranda is someone who's found a fulfilling right. calling, right? But I do think there's this, there is something that she's saying about that being harder to do. Like in the collapse, post-collapse, people can choose i don't think she's right about this i think this is actually a place where there's a little bit of fantasy because to the degree she talks about it she makes it seem like you can kind of do like oh you have a you have a skill you do the skill yeah so uh, like this is the post-capitalist part that doesn't really make sense and why the disappearance of money doesn't make sense she sort of implies that people are doing labor for each other and people can do that Mm -hmm. That that's a way you can survive I still have more to say, but Dan, you're anxious to to jump in, so go, go ahead. Well,
1: I, a couple of things. I guess the way I would think about it is that what was unusual about this book is actually, in particular, Miranda's job, because that's not normally a job that in a novel is valorized, I guess would be the way to put it.
0: No, I think she does. And, and she does, does valorize I think she,
1: it, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: I, I think you're, you're taking what I'm saying as a strong critique of capitalism and i don't think that's what no i don't
1: think it. i agree yeah yeah no
0: what she's saying is that we don't notice these things and i think and we don't think about the value that work
1: has and i do i will say this what what the what the book does do well which is not something that is easy to do in a novel is make it clear how wonderful it is when someone does find their calling and, yes. and I think, you know, we see that with Miranda discovering she actually likes shipping and logistics, which is not a conventional thing that is is valorized in a novel. Like, she doesn't have right. a magazine writing job or something like that. Or I think, that, and this is best exemplified by Jeevan, who is a paparazzo and doesn't like it, is an entertainment reporter and doesn't like it, but becomes a paramedic and, re- like, in some ways realizes, oh, this is what I actually am supposed to do. And so that yes. is fascinating for me. The other thing I would say is that the advantage of capitalism is that it allows for a wider variety of those kinds of jobs.
0: Yeah, I would disagree. OK. This is where, okay. <laughs> I would disagree. I think there's a lot of people out there, for instance, that would be great journalists mm. but can't become journalists because they have student loans uh. or they don't have a family to support them because journalism pays. But without family.
1: civilization, there are no journalists.
0: That's, that's not true. There's a newspaper in the
1: there's book. one news. OK, yes. But like that's
0: and people would. I think he's also right. I think as a journalist, mm-hmm. I think that he's an example of something that would happen.
1: Right. Right.
0: That there would be journalism and it might not take the form of a newspaper that actually is almost kind of weird. No, that makes but, sense. Cause um, if, would you, I almost think bards and, uh, and to, to get to the traveling symphony. Yeah. People are able to, this is a thing that they can do now, right? Mm -hmm. The symphony is made up of interesting variations on this, though. Because, again, she doesn't make this distinction. This is me kind of reading into it. But there's work, there's craft, and there's calling, Hmm. right? And I think one of the things that happens in the book is people are released from work. Right. And there's a lot more craft. (laughs) There are people pursuing craft in a way that I would say is more difficult to do in late capitalism I think Clark would not become a museum curator, which I think is winds up being his calling. That is his calling.
1: I agree. I get
0: so If he had done anything else besides being an executive, whatever he was, so, executive coach.
1: Two, I guess two points of response to this. The first is, is that I think work still exists. It's just a different kind of work. Whereas in this. Oh, yeah, you sure. There have are people
0: to, who don't love what right, they're doing. There are people who hunt don't hunt
1: animals or okay. cook, like so that there is still work. Right. That but is that's dredgery. actually
0: also not work. You're not compensated. That's for. fair. That's but, fair. Like, <laughs> but people are free to do. I mean, again, I don't think she's saying. And so we should do this. Right. Right. right? Oh, no, like, no, 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 not, not. Like, no, 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 no. Clearly not. No, no, no. You know. Yeah. But she's just pointing out that like in this more state of nature environment, there is this freedom to to engage yeah. with passion. The other thing
1: I will say, and this was something I did like about the novel on the second read, was her description of, for lack of a better putting it, the ecosystem of the traveling symphony where everyone yeah. has their petty grievances and feuds and disputes and so on and so forth. And that what I liked was her suggestion that this is something that exists in a pre-capitalist capitalist and post-capitalist stage this yeah. is humanity that's human yeah that's, that's never human. escaping and i like that yeah
0: and uh, just to talk a little bit more about calling because yeah. you're right like is a great example right. arthur's a great example yes. miranda's a great example Kristen's or kirsten, kirsten yeah. is a great example mm-hmm. and of course tyler no,
1: yes i guess is an example
0: yeah, yeah. and i have thought a lot about craft and calling in, in my life mm-hmm. in part because i'm a person who's incredibly fortunate right. that to do something that is more like a calling mm-hmm. than anything else yeah and I wanted to sort of circle around to faith in that regard, mm. because I think that having a calling is, or to feel like you are called to do something, and to be able to do that, mm-hmm. is almost an expression of faith. Hmm. I was meant to do this. I am doing this for a reason. Yeah, that's how I feel about my calling. Is I am doing it for a reason. There is something in. I am fitting. I am. My piece in the great plan, mm-hmm. the puzzle piece that I am, mm-hmm. is this thing that I do. And I am fortunate to be able to do it. Like, I have fit into the universe in the way that I'm supposed to fit. Interesting. It's not always a good thing.
1: Yeah, yeah, No, like... G-
0: Some people have a calling to do violence. Right. Or also,
1: like, I right? mean, this is, and this is a theme that recurs in a lot of literature, is the idea that you want to be a writer. You have a calling to be a writer. That's not necessarily the greatest thing. It can be a miserable experience.
0: And also, you could be shitty yeah, at
1: it. yeah. Right. Um, and that's but by, it is a way of like <laughs> everything.
0: But it, to me, I kind of want to bring it back to the idea of faith. Like if you believe that, mm-hmm. that is a kind of faith. Yes. And that is a kind of steadying thing. For but him. I want I It's a steadying thing for Arthur. True. Like in his life, which is full of turbulence. The one thing he knows he can come back to is he really loves being an actor.
1: Does he or does he love being a movie star?
0: I think he actually loves... I think there's... It's unclear. It's polluted by fame. Yeah. It's polluted by fame, but I think he loves acting. I really do. Maybe. I think there's that
1: ditter he that has with Clark where Clark makes it clear. Right. That in his, oh, yeah. uh,
0: he's not a perfect person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But also, I mean, Kirsten also loves acting. That's true. So one last thing in this section. Survival is insufficient. It's from Star Trek Voyager. Mm-hmm. A lot of reviews, a lot of people talking about this book like this was a main takeaway. <laughs> And I think it was primarily interpreted as the need for art yeah. in one's mm-hmm. life. I think it's about the need for fulfilling work.
1: Hmm. I think you're I right. I think it's
0: about the need to f- fulfill something greater than just like hunting, eating,
1: and meat. and it's it's more than yeah. food, clothing, and shelter. It's that you have, and a, it's
0: also more than art. Right.
1: It's that you have a purpose. It, yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's yeah. a good way of putting it. And that that is, you're right. I hadn't. That, that frames it nicely, which is that these are about characters who need to find what are they supposed to do. And in many cases, that what they wind up enjoying doing are things that you wouldn't have expected. Like, they're not the standard things. But nonetheless, right. that's what, what matters. The one thing I do want to close, though, is you said something, which is this is, as a professor, sometimes the most painful thing is when you have students who believe they have found their calling.
0: You know, uh-huh. they want to get a
1: Ph.D. in something or they, they want to write something and the most there's a lie that is sometimes told to people that says find what you really love doing and if you know if you do it you know then do that and and you'll you'll be rewarded right. and it is possible to love something do it and not be good at it
0: yeah yeah and she doesn't really get into no. that no
1: and which is fine which would be an
0: interesting yeah. interesting thing to explore in a but novel.
1: that's that's a different novel than this is but like i've just yeah uh,
0: I want to wrap this just a little bit more around Mm -hmm. to late-stage capitalism, which is that the pivotal irony of the book Mm -hmm. is that in our modern world, full of convenience, Mm -hmm. most of us are still basically just surviving. And it's when convenience is ripped away, Mm -hmm. we discover what truly counts as luxury.
1: Mm. Okay. Dan? Yes?
0: Have you found your calling? I think I have. I mean, being a professor... I don't think you have to be sure about it. No,
1: well, let me put it this way. I'm a little reluctant. I mean, yes, I think I have. I'm a professor. I'm really good at just standing in front of a student and telling them what they should think, which the joke I always make is that being a professor is that you get to go into a room and tell people what you think, and they write down what you think, and then later they're graded by how well they can regurgitate the things that you thought. So it's a tremendous...
0: Well, that's very satisfying. It's a very
1: ego-satisfying thing. That said, I do honestly love teaching students. That is a wonderful feeling. The only reason I I have some hesitancy in saying that is that it's not the only thing I like to do. And so, you know, like, I I like writing. I like writing for a wider audience at times. I like this podcast. You know.
0: I think, actually, this is in the book, which is to say that I don't think... You can do a calling 24-7. Right. And in fact, maybe Tyler is an example of, the of why of you shouldn't. Yes,
1: exactly. Right? That's, so that's, in other words, I, I want to put boundaries on the idea of calling. You're right. A calling should not be hopefully a 24-7 thing. It should be something that you do, but you can also take joy in other things. That's that's the only thing.
0: And also it's something that is you do the other things in order to do the thing that you're you're called to mm-hmm. kind yeah. of like – Part of it, at least, like, because I would say, like, I would never say that, like, writing is my calling, because mm. th- there's stuff, there are times when I'm writing that I'm like, this is shitty, I don't like <laughs> it, I don't want to be doing it. <laughs> yeah. I think we had this conversation when I finished my book proposal, yeah. and I was like, it sucks, I hate it, I never want to see it again. <laughs> yeah, just for the record, I read
1: it, it doesn't suck, so I don't want to hear this shit, you know. It's
0: just I've been working on it for right. so long, yeah. 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 right, but also at the same time, like what I've discovered in my life, for instance, is that like doing this sobriety column mm. feels different than a lot of other writing I've ever done. Uh, I see, yeah. It feels fundamentally different, mm. and it feels more like it is satisfying in a way that not everything that I do for money is, mm. you know. Yeah. And I guess what I want to say is, it's that feeling of deep, which I also, by the way, have gotten from teaching. No, but
1: it's the feeling of deep satisfaction, and yes, yes. no, that I that I yes. understand and. Yeah, and I've gotten that, you know, just about every facet of my career, which is a nice thing. Like, you know, there there are days where like, oh, man, I taught a really good class today. And I love that feeling. And I love that feeling when I'm done with a piece of writing and it's like, okay, I had the idea. It's a good idea. And it's actually reading on the paper what I wanted that was originally in my head. It's not a common feeling, but it's a wonderful feeling when it happens. Yes.
0: And then there's that – the. Flow state feeling, yeah. which is rapturous. Oh, I mean, like yeah. that sounds like an exaggeration, but if you've ever experienced it, I think, oh, rapturous. It's also not the quite the right <laughs> But It does it's, connect it's, to religion. It does connect to <laughs> religion, tra- but faith. it is. Yeah. It's when like anyone who's who d- continues to write has to have had this experience, which is that I start writing at one o'clock in the afternoon and I look up at it it's 7. yeah
1: now the the ri- and,
0: and it is it is I and it, I have just been absorbed. Yeah.
1: It's when you're locked in. It's when there's no hesitation between what comes into your brain and then what comes out on the keyboard. And though at least for me, I can't speak for Honor or anyone else. For me, those moments are rare. And like when those moments happen, you just surf the wave as long as humanly possible.
0: I would actually say for me, it's not that the connection is so good that like what comes into my head just comes out on the mm-hmm. page. It's actually there's a part of it that's for me almost even more satisfying, Ooh. which is and I've always thought of it as putting together a puzzle. Like, yeah, I, or, or, I have an idea in my brain of a thing I want to express, mm-hmm. and it's like a Rubik's cube. Yeah,
1: like, I will say this.
0: I have to keep spinning, and I have to—I rewrite sometimes, and I go back, and I move a paragraph, but it's all to make this thing that I have on, in my head mm-hmm. come out on the No, page. for me,
1: it's when— uh,
0: And it's fascinating to make that to solve that problem.
1: Another rare time, but, like, I love these moments, is when you're writing, and, like, it's not just the words that are in your head, for me— it's that I know the exact structure of the outline, and
0: I, oh, that's oh god, I can't. I don't. I don't know. How, that has probably been like one. In the right.
1: No, it doesn't funny. happen that often. But when it does happen, <laughs> and you realize, oh, and I'm going to be able to connect back to here, and so on. So it's, it's a lovely feeling. So yes.
0: Yeah, it is, and that's, and not everyone gets to experience that. Mm. And that's another reason why, for me, it almost connects back into faith. Fair enough. Because it's a kind of blessedness. Oh. So. Yeah. Wait. Oh my god! <laughs> bang 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 bang. Oh my god. Oh god, something.
1: it's like it's arrows coming up from everywhere. And, yeah. Yes.
0: Oh my god, someone threw a knife. Oh at god, me. I gotta
1: tattoo my arm now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's the debris field. Yes. Where we talk about the stuff we didn't get to talk about before. Covered a lot of ground yeah. in. But surely there's some left. What do you got? There
1: is a little bit. I don't have a ton, but I have some. First of all, I, I don't normally say this about a novel, but like there are very smart pop culture references because the pop culture references that, that Mandel puts in this novel have legs. You know, she references Calvin and Hobbes. Calvin and Hobbes is going to be enduring. She references Star Trek. Star Trek will be enduring. She references R.E.M. It's the end of the world as we know it. There's not a ton of that stuff, but she, she's choosing like gold standard kinds of pop culture
0: Shakespeare Shakespeare even yes so like
1: I I just appreciated that small aside which I I was intrigued by and I I missed the first time I read it which is that the roots of the traveling symphony are military that it started off as a military symphony on a base and then they started traveling and then hooked up with an acting company and that 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 just I found fascinating and that would it would make sense again because like you'd expect the remnants of the military would have sufficient trust to be able to 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 do this As someone who read this novel, I think six or seven years ago, about a year or two after it came out, and then read it again for this, it is worth a second read. St. John Mandel has full control of this narrative. There are references that appear in the first, act, as Anna said before, almost everything is a Chekhov's what's-it in this book. But it's honestly a pleasure to read someone who is painting a nice painting, I guess would be the way to put it. Um, And that's good. This is a very Canadian book. I think St. John Mandel is from Canada. But like, you know, the, the, a lot of the action takes place in Toronto. Two of the main characters grow up in a very small island in British Columbia. I, it, there's a lot that happens in the United States as well. But it, I, I was just intrigued by the sort of Canadianness of this. And one last thing, which is I do recommend the miniseries. And I particularly recommend the miniseries for those who read and love the novel. And the reason I recommend it is that in some ways the miniseries does something perfect in terms of the book. Book, which is it takes sufficient liberties so that you can love the book even if you don't like what they do with the miniseries but the miniseries is a different thing and so it, in some ways it'll prompt some more interesting conversations and that's it
0: oh yeah. my turn huh? uh, what do you got yeah, yeah. all right I've actually in a question Dan if you had to barter skills Ooh. what would you do
1: I don't know kill things with a frisbee I mean like I, you know <laughs>
0: Yeah, you could probably Captain America. I, I, yeah, it?
1: I think so. You know, give me give me a good frisbee. Like, I'm not sure. Like, yeah, I could give lectures about history. Like, if they, if, if those are in demand, much actually,
0: like, being a historian might be something you could. I could for.
1: actually barter being a historian if you yeah.
0: made it 20 years yeah. when they are getting back to having schools. Yeah, yeah. you could yeah. probably barter for. Teaching I would because actua- teaching is also something that not everyone that's true. Can do. And
1: I could teach. I think I could teach younger children as well. I used to be a camp counselor back in the bidet, and so like I think I could I could resuscitate those skills. What about you, Anna? What would you barter?
0: I don't know. I mean, I'm actually okay at like woodland shit, like survivor stuff.
1: Okay. Good to know.
0: I'm really good at building fires. I can build like,
1: fires too. This is good. Okay. Yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. We, yes, talked we about did. We did. We did. Yes. Yeah. We're both like, good. I'm fires. really good at building fires. Yeah. I'm like decent at like finding my way around, okay. yeah. you know, and I'm good at like constructing shelters. Mm-hmm. Like, to the, I've never had, I haven't had to construct a shelter since I was, like, in Girl Scouts in summer camp a long time ago, but I was good at it then. I imagine I could be good at mm-hmm. it now. I also have a really good memory, which I bet you do, too. So I've thought about how to utilize that, mm-hmm. and I'm good at researching things. Right. So to the degree that I am good at survival shit, mm-hmm. I could become better at it pretty fast. Because okay. I think one of the first things I would try to do if I'm out on my own would be to go and look at these books. Mm like to go and find these books on like survival foraging yeah, and whatnot. Yeah. And I think I could get good at that and have a good memory for it and be able to elaborate on those skills. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Teaching also, but
1: you could be an I oral, I, be, be, I bet you would actually be a great oral historian. Like, you know, if, cause I mean, your interviewing if skills. I, would I could be good convince here. people. Yeah, yeah.
0: Oh yeah, actually. To, to, yeah. If I could convince people that was important, yeah. I would definitely do yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> There are some beautiful passages. We probably we didn't really talk about the. No, writing, the writing is
1: lovely. There's, I mean, the, but the writing. Yeah, is it, I, in some ways, just as the plotting is well constructed and so on and so forth. There's a feeling that I, I, I don't know how to describe, and I, I'm, maybe you know what I'm talking about, Anna. Where you're reading a book where you know you are in, it's like you've given your hand to someone who is going to guide you through the woods, and you know it's going to be a lovely yeah. walk, and that's the way I, I sort of felt reading this book.
0: Yeah, yeah. doggy.
1: <laughs> there's a doggy.
0: <laughs> And the doggy winds up not being evil. <laughs> the doggy belongs to the cult leader, mm-hmm. but then becomes Kirsten's.
1: That's the second dog will in the
0: I would say. Yes, there's two. Because Miranda doggies. has right, right, uh, right. Luli. They're named the Lulee, same. I think, is
1: the name. Yeah.
0: They're both named yeah. Luli. And I have to say, as soon as Miranda's dog came in, I was like, oh shit, Tyler's the prophet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I have to say, that happens pretty early on. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she is very much in control of the narrative but it is sometimes a little easy to be like oh so that's where this is going she's a good enough writer that you're along for the ride Mm -hmm. like for instance with tyler the fact that the prophet has a dog named luli and then miranda's dog is named luli and it's pretty easy to figure out but i was like well how did you right
1: yeah the journey matters as much as the destination
0: Yeah, but people, you know, observant readers will probably find some Mm -hmm. times where they make the connections, perhaps when they're supposed to. I don't know. Maybe she intends that. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Mm. I don't know. In summation. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Oh, I remember we were going to talk about this. Uh, Speaking of the cult leader, I... Was not satisfied by the way that that plot line. Oh,
1: right. Up. So we should, yeah. The, the, yeah, I was surprised on the second reading. The, the.
0: It happens like really fast happened, and without a it, lot of fanfare, it, it, and there's not a ton of. For something that actually she does a great job of building tension right. about.
1: The climax, I think, literally lasts a paragraph. It's not a.
0: Yeah. they like, they shoot him. He's right. dead.
1: And I think that in some ways <laughs> it's a credit to Mandel because the menace of the prophet's group is manifest throughout all the the mm-hmm. pages before that in some ways it was almost like the the white walkers in game of thrones where like they're yeah. like bad, bad bad oh that's all you had to do okay all right well I'll take care of that
0: and you pointed out it's sort of gruesome and, and horrible when the young foot soldier yeah. kills himself mm-hmm. that also felt disappointing not that she wouldn't that's realistic yeah. but like I wanted a little more from that character, like maybe have built that character
1: out up. a little more. We yeah. see
0: him a couple times before then, we know he's dissatisfied, so it's not a surprise when he kills the prophet. But it is a
1: surprise when he kills himself. That was that, was, that, that it is that a was surprise shocking. when he kills himself. Yeah.
0: That actually was the part where I was like could we get some more regret from yeah. him? Yeah. No, that's like some more feeling like of his complicity yeah. cuz he actually helps the hostages a little bit.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so yeah. Fair enough. And just for something that she says such a good job building Menace with, Mm. like I wanted more of a showdown.
1: Yeah. No, no. no. Or what I also wanted was more stakes, because while Kirsten's life is in danger, that oh, was yeah. that was actually it. And so like I,
0: I Cuz what I imagined happening was kind of like something in the stand, right? Mm-hmm. Which or if you don't know if you've read the no. stand, but was the prophet coming to the airport. Right,
1: I was actually expecting
0: And people having to pick My supplies. memory
1: was the climax actually happened at the airport. And so it was interesting that like I I was surprised rereading it that that that, that it happened there, but
0: because that would be an interesting pick sides yeah. thing. Like I could imagine a novel wouldn't be necessarily any better than this one, by the way, it'd probably be mm-hmm. worse, but an interesting way to go would be to present the profit versus the airport as like civilization versus not civilization, yeah. right? Like, which are you going to choose? Are you going to choose like the surety?
1: Now I really of... want you to watch the miniseries. series.
0: Okay. Yeah. I will. Yeah. I will. In my copious free time, which I'm not actually <laughs> joking <laughs> about that book proposal needs a little more polishing fair enough <laughs> I have a, I'm have. worried that my book proposal is turning into like Madame DeForge's knitting like I, I it's just every time I, my agent gets it he's like well there's one more thing and I'm like I don't know <laughs> but it'll be done at okay. some point and then I'll have a book to write there we go unfortunately <laughs> like that's the other thing is maybe I'm actually doing this in, in, somehow on purpose <laughs> I hope not but that is what I will be working on until next time keep this
1: channel open for more.